Well, good morning. Christmas has outfitted me to preach this morning. I have on my uh, J. Thomas preaching vest, <laughs> as well as the holy khakis. <laughs> I really should pray after that. <laughs> Lord, we do come to you and sit under your word as hearers. We want to hear your word spoken into our innermost being. Spirit, would you come do your work so that we would be hearers and not just hearers of your word, Lord. Would we then turn and be doers? Would we go with what we've learned and live for you? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's just about the new year, right? And of course, it's that time to look forward and ask that perennial question, what resolutions are you making for the new year? Have you made any resolutions for 2020 yet? I once told my wife, Caroline, that I intended to exercise six days a week and that I'd pay her $1 for every day that I didn't exercise. And I'm pretty sure I owe her a small fortune. I also heard of a man in Texas who had resolved to eat a taco a day for the entire year. He was hospitalized in October, which can neither be confirmed nor denied had anything to do with the tacos, but he did keep his resolve, 365 tacos. Well, polls tell us that 50% of Americans make resolutions. The same polls tell us that, that about 8% of us succeed in keeping them. Now, 8% is probably like the first two rows right here, so the rest of y'all, slackers. In actuality, we make resolutions all the time from the extremely significant, such as, I am going to marry this person, to the more mundane, let's eat tacos. To make a resolution is to be human. In fact, I think we could say that the making of resolutions is an essential part of being made in the image of God. The scriptures tell us that God wills and acts according to his good purpose. Hear that. God has a will, and we too, made in his image, have a will. And resolutions are a, a product of that will. They are what we want to do, or at least what we're willing to do. And so what we resolve to do, and especially why we resolve to do what we do, I think tells us a lot about our innermost selves. Resolutions are good indicators of the soul. They're kind of like your car's dashboard. It has gauges, right? It tells you at any moment the status and state of your car. This time of year, my old pickup Nissan in the parking lot, it lights up like a Christmas tree because there is a low indicator light for low air in the tires. There's a fuel gauge light that's constantly on because it's stuck. And then there's the check engine light always in my face. They're indicators. Resolutions like a dashboard, indicate the health of our souls. More specifically, they reveal something. They reveal our faith, they reveal our hope, and they reveal our love. They tell us who we trust, they tell us who we depend on, and they tell us who and or what we really care about. So as we examine this morning our resolutions through the lens of the Word of God that we just read, would you ask yourself this particular question? What do your resolutions say 
about your confidence in God and your dependence on Jesus and your genuine love for one another. What do your resolutions say about your confidence in God, your dependence on Jesus, and your genuine love for one another? So today's passage is the opening words of a letter from a man named Paul to a church. And Paul and his his companions, Silvanus, also known as Silas, and Timothy, they've written this letter to the church that meets in this ancient city of Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. And as you listen to the scripture read, you probably were flagging words like suffering, persecution, flaming fire, vengeance, eternal destruction. And the thing you might be wondering right now is what in the world does this have to do with resolutions? Well, before we answer that, I want us to run a post pattern down to the end zone of verse 11 and verse 12, if you look back there with me, where Paul is praying for the church that God would fulfill every resolve for good in every work of his faith, of of faith by his power. That phrase, every resolve for good, that's that's where we're heading, that's our end zone. But before we get there, we can't do an end run around the life and situation of the church in Thessalonica. So remember, 2 Thessalonians is a letter. And a few years before this letter, Paul had showed up there with his partner Silas, and they ignited this city with the message of Jesus. And there were certain Jews in the city at that time, and you can read about this later in the book of Acts, Acts 17, and they said this, quote, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. In fact, Paul needed to be evacuated from the city when an angry mob of jealous Jews shows up at the house of a new believer named Jason. Jason and other Christians at the time were charged with something like treason. They're forced to pay for disturbing the peace of the city. And then those very jealous Jews pursue Paul and his companions into other cities, stirring up trouble for them. Now, all right, put that in today's terms, okay? Imagine for for a minute, one day a mob bangs on Dennis's door here, right, and forces him, and maybe, maybe you as well, into the Philadelphia criminal court system. Seven Mile Road, with its mysterious name and its gospel mission community message, gets accused of being this dangerous movement that threatens law and order and peace in the city. Dennis has to fork over a load of bail money, Ajay, Binu, and Sibi, they get smuggled out of Philadelphia to save their skin. And we, we, the remaining church community, we are getting ripped apart on social media, and we're getting slandered on the evening news. You're the constant target. Imagine that. Feel that. Of police surveillance. And you're receiving regular death threats by text. Imagine that. Your nerves rubbed raw. No one knows when it's going to finish. Could you handle that kind of stress of being hated and hunted? If no one outside the church, for example, understood you or sympathized with you, would you be tempted to shrink back? Because the Thessalonian church is under that kind of gun. They're under that kind of fire. And in the heat of the battle, they have this supernatural resolve. Take a look again at verse 3. 
in the face of real suffering, Paul says their, their faith in Jesus is growing abundantly and their love for one another is increasing. Now, if you remember our Moore series, Jay pointed out that the growing faith and love of the Thessalonians was a direct answer to Paul's prayer in his first letter. He had prayed in 1 Thessalonians 3 for these things, for their faith and for their love. Paul himself is no stranger to suffering. In one place, he writes these words, For Jesus' sake, Paul says, For Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And to another church, another suffering church, he says this, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And then again, here in this letter to the church in Thessalonica, Paul says, verse 4, we ourselves Boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. See, Paul's greeting seems to be saying that their endurance in their suffering is producing these two great fruits, faith and love. Now, brothers and sisters, I wonder... Do you know something of this? Something of faith and love born out of affliction, born out of suffering for Jesus. You know, there may not be an angry mob of jealous Jews banging down your door this Christmas, or this Christmas or New Year's Eve, but it's not hyperbole when the scripture promises this. Those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, followers of Jesus in other countries around the world certainly can testify to the truth of that scripture. I was reading just a few stories this past month, two weeks ago, in fact, a Christian brother in Morocco was facing imprisonment simply for telling people about Jesus at his work. Friends of ours there confirmed that. Three weeks ago, nine Christians on a bus in Kenya were stopped by Islamic militants and then shot when they refused to recite the Islamic creed. In October, a 14-year-old girl, Christian girl, was kidnapped, forced to convert to Islam, and married off to a Muslim in Pakistan. Now, you and I might not experience persecution quite like that, but that doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that there isn't real and significant suffering going on all around us as well as inside of us. And what I mean is this, is that in our innermost beings, there are mobs, mobs of sinful thoughts, mobs of godless emotions, mobs, mobs of inordinate desires. And these enemies, they get stirred up by our fallen world and by Satan himself. Physical enemies might not be banging on your door, but the spiritual, spiritual enemy of sin is already broken in to our house. 
If we were to put that into military terms, we might say that our sin is a clear and present danger. It is an imminent, lawless threat within us. And to live a godly life is to go to war with sin. Have you experienced that enemy? Have you experienced the enemy of unbelief? Have you experienced the enemy of jealousy or fear, bitterness or rage? Have you experienced the enemy of pride or lust or discontentment or despair or irritability and things like this? Who's your enemy? What's your battle? And how, how do you fight it? So as you think of your resolutions, past and present, do they have anything to do with the fact that there is a spiritual battle waging in the lives of people all around you as well as within your own soul? Paul knows that it takes resolve to fight, not flesh and blood, he says in Ephesians, but against the spiritual forces of evil. And Paul sees the Thessalonians, they have this steadfast faith. They have this exemplary love. And he goes on to give them exactly what they need. And that thing is hope. Hope for salvation in their ongoing fight. And the hope that he gives is anchored to a person. And that person is the avenger. The avenger. Now, get out of your mind. Ideas of Iron Man and Hulk, Black Widow... Captain Marvel. Uh, we can have a great conversation about that sometime. But here in the first letter to the Thessalonians, uh, actually in this first letter, Paul literally uses the word avenger to talk about God. Now look again here at verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These are sobering words. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Paul uses this epic language, teaching that God takes vengeance upon those who have hated his son and have persecuted his people. In the first century church, in first century Thessalonica, persecution was flagrant, and it was intense. Christian property was being confiscated. Church members... Like you and I were being imprisoned, brothers and sisters were being stoned, they were being beheaded, they were being burned, they were being fed to wild animals. And what happened in the first century didn't just stay there. If you read the history, persecution has continued century by century up to the present day. And here, just a little bit of a recent statistic, the Christian ministry opened doors, they track Christian persecution every year. In the year 2018... They said about one in four Christians around the world currently live in places uh, that experience high levels of persecution. One in four. They said 4,300 Christians were killed for their faith in 2018 around the world. 
1,100 churches like this and other Christian buildings were attacked that same year. 3,100 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, imprisoned. Brothers and sisters around the world, who takes notice, right? Well, God takes notice. Some people today, they may hear these verses of uh, 6 through 10, and they may think that God is cruel and that he takes vengeance and wrath against such evils. Author J.I. Packer once wrote this about God's wrath. He said, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. That is, in God's vengeance, every moral evil receives its right and its necessary recompense, its necessary repayment. And that's because every moral evil is ultimately done against an infinitely just and an infinitely holy God. So what motivated these early Christians, these Thessalonians, that's a hard word to say. Thessalonians, these early Christians resolved not to return evil for evil. They were the ones being lit up by Roman empires as human torches for their parties. They were the ones that were being fed to lions in the stadiums for their entertainment. What gave French Huguenots later on in the 16th and 17th centuries or English Puritans resolved to pray for their enemies as they were beheaded, or forgive them as they were burned at the stake. And onward to, to today, what gives resolve to brothers and sisters being taken away, struck down in China and in India and North Africa in the Middle East? What do they have in common that gives them supernatural resolve to suffer the loss of all things, whether it's their property, whether it's their employment, maybe it's their family, even their very lives, for the sake of Jesus. Could it be, could it be that these Christians have fixed their hope completely on the love of their Savior and the justice of their coming avenger? The day is coming, these verses teach, when Jesus the King returns as both Savior and avenger. The scriptures say that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That is a sobering thought. And on that day, the hope is sin and Satan will be completely gone. On that day, we will be saved from all suffering, both within and from all around us. All that day, we will experience a deep and lasting satisfaction in the love of God, as well as in the justice of Jesus the King. But on this day, but on this Sunday, where is your hope? Where is our hope? If you've never trusted in Jesus, this, these verses here are earnestly urging you to obey the good news. You see that? Obey the gospel. Obey the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. Receive his grace. Receive his offer of peace. And then go live for him. Perhaps you're a believer and you found yourself again in a spiritually dark, dangerous place. Perhaps you're living at peace with some sin. 
Perhaps you've given up your fight with it. Perhaps you feel maybe indifferent. Maybe you feel a certain pleasure in it. Listen, your sin is not at peace with you. Your sin is not indifferent to you. In fact, as one old pastor said, Puritan pastor, John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. As we enter this new year, wouldn't it be right, fitting, to resolve to fight sin and endure suffering for Christ, knowing what we've received in Christ, knowing all that we have in him and who he is. So we come to Paul's prayer for the church in uh, in 2 Thessalonians verse 11. And here, I want to just ask you that question again from the beginning. What do your resolutions say about your confidence in God, about your dependence on Jesus, and about your genuine love for one another? Well, in verse 11, Paul speaks of every resolve for good. Listen again, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Resolve for good. What exactly does that mean? Well, one of my favorite theologians is Calvin, not the French reformer of the Protestant Reformation, though he's pretty good too. Um, but his namesake, the precocious six-year-old of the 80s comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. And I want you to listen to this conversation uh, between six-year-old Calvin and his sidekick tiger named Hobbes. We have a slide for that, I think. Here we go. Hobbes says this, how are you doing on your New Year's resolutions? Calvin, I didn't make any. See, in order to improve oneself, one must have some idea of what is good. That implies certain values. But as we all know, values are relative. Every system of belief is equally valid, and we need to tolerate diversity. Virtue isn't better than vice. It's just different. Hobbes, I don't know if I can tolerate that much tolerance. Calvin, I refuse to be victimized by notions of virtuous behavior. When it comes to resolutions, are you victimized by someone else's notions of virtuous behavior? Well, as Christians, I think our answer can honestly be yes. We are victims of God's notions of right and wrong, as he records them in the Bible. In fact, we are glad victims, right? We should be thankful victims of his notions or what might better be called his will. What's more, when our resolutions, when they end up aligning with God's will, they end up being the most God-honoring, the most liberating, and the most life-giving ways that we can live. However, there is an essential ingredient that makes a resolution for good, good. You see, a good resolution not only aligns with God's will, but a good resolution must proceed from faith and hope and love for God. Or put another way, resolution, it may, be, it may look good, but if a resolution has no reference to God, if it has no reliance on God, if it has no affection for God at its core, that re- resolution becomes, as one person has called it, a damnable good work. The sobering reality is that we're all prone to make resolutions without a single thought about God. 
Could it be that our resolutions are so devoid of God that they're so godless, in other words, because we're so in love with the world and we've made peace with our sin? One of my other favorite theologians is the American Jonathan Edwards, who lived, incidentally, just up the street here in Princeton, New Jersey. Edwards was a prolific writer. His works are enormous, his theological reflections extremely profound. There's a smaller work of his that have become known as his resolutions, 70 resolutions in all. And I want to read to you just seven of them. And I want you to notice as we read them how, how his faith and hope and love for God informs each and every one. Here, are, here they are. Number four, this is resolution number four, resolved never to do anything, whether physically or spiritually, except what glorifies God. Number seven, never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it was the last hour of my life. Number eight, resolve to act in all respects, both in speaking and doing, as if nobody had ever been as sinful as I am. Number 10, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom, martyrdom, both of Jesus and of believers around the world, and remind myself of the reality of hell. Number 23, resolved, frequently, I love this one, frequently take some deliberate action, something out of the ordinary, and do it for the glory of God. Then I will trace my intention back and try to discern my real and deepest motive. What did I really desire out of it? If I find that my truest motive was not for God's glory, then I consider it a breach of the fourth resolution. That's the one we started with. Number 25, resolved to examine carefully, constantly, what the one thing in me is, that, is it that causes me to doubt of the love of God, even the least little bit, and then to direct all of my forces against it. And number 30, resolved to strive to my utmost every week to be brought to a higher spiritual place, to a greater experience of grace than I was the week before. Now, when Paul talks about every resolve for good... In verse 11, I think of resolutions like these. And teenagers, look, these resolutions were written by Jonathan Edwards when he was 19 years old. And he returned to them every single year of his life. So there may be those of us who are successful in keeping our New Year's resolutions, the 8%, right, like Mr. Taco a day. But who is strong enough, really, to keep resolutions like these? No one, right? Not even Jonathan Edwards. When it comes to resolutions made in faith and hope and love for God, where does the power come from? Well, here in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11, Paul's prayer is this. God, may God fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith, catch it, by his power. By his power. The victory over sin and Satan, it belongs to the Lord Jesus. That's the gospel. The victory over sin and Satan, that belongs to the Lord Jesus. He breaks the power of sin and death. Jesus is the one who resolutely, and hear that again, he resolutely, it says in Luke 9, set out for Jerusalem. For the joy set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross, 
scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Jesus resolved to die for sinners like you and I so that we would have life through faith in him. The resolution of resolution was kept by Jesus on the cross. And we who are members of the body of Christ, listen, God delights. He delights to equip. He delights to empower you to fight against the foe of sin and Satan that still remains. To fight well is to go into the fight with hope and faith and love, knowing we're going to suffer in the fight. Fighting for your, for your own self, and but also fighting for others. Suffering is part of God's sanctifying work. The fight is part of God's sanctifying work that makes his church worthy of his calling and his kingdom. That's verses 5 and 11. Put another way, the suffering that comes from fighting sin under the headship of Jesus is the way that God makes you and I fit for heaven. It's a sanctifying work. God will supply your every need, fulfill your every resolve for good, and your every work of faith by his power. Do you believe that? Finally, and here's the extra point, verse 12. Every good resolution, every work of faith, every act of obedience to the gospel of Jesus acts and aims at this goal. And that is this, verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. As we enter this new year, wouldn't it be fitting to remember why we make resolutions? Isn't it to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? I want to close, and I want to make this our prayer as we close, with the lyrics of an old hymn. It's called, I Am Resolved. So if you would, listen and pray with me. I am resolved to go to the Savior. Lord, I am resolved to go to the Savior. Leaving my sin and strife, he is the true one. He is the just one. He has the words of life. I am resolved to follow the Savior, faithful and true each day, to heed what he says, to do what he wills. He is the living way. I am resolved to enter the kingdom, leaving the paths of sin. Friends may oppose me, foes may beset me, still I will enter in. I will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee.